Good morning. How are we doing? Good. There are some people missing from last week, so I guess last week when we talked about the art of neighboring, some folks decided that they needed to move because <laughs> they, uh, they didn't want to do this stuff. So that's okay. Uh, hopefully they're on the stream. And, and, you know, please move back to Oxford when, when, you, feel, when you feel so uh, led to do so. I, I love living in this city. I don't know about you guys, but I love living in this city. I think there's something really special about the Oxford community, um, just about the spiritual landscape here and what God has done um, in, in people in this city over, really over centuries. And um, I think that there's a, a powerful spiritual heritage to be had in Oxford. And I know that some of you have been, you know, living in this community and ministering here for decades. And um, we just applaud you for for kind of laying the, the, the pavement, so to speak, uh, for, for what we are doing and walking in today. Um, just, just so much love and, and respect for you guys. You know, when I came to Oxford, when I came to Miami University six years ago, um, I don't know if I anticipated Oxford becoming home, uh, but it really has. It really has. And I like to tell people that I thought God was sending me to Oxford for the sake of attending Miami University, but I quickly found out when I arrived here that God sent me to Miami University for the sake of Oxford, and, and that, you know, this city, uh, so many circumstances kind of conspired together for Bree and I to end up here and to be planted here and to start our family here, and um, I don't know if, if you have ever felt this way. You know, maybe you grew up here, or maybe you... Uh, started out here and then you moved away and came back, or maybe you've, you've landed here recently, like we have, but I, f- I have always had this sense that God has had us in Oxford for a reason. Like there was a, there was a, a, a really intentional purpose behind why we ended up here, and, and I hope that you feel similarly, even if you've been here for your whole life. Um, or, or if you're here from a surrounding community, you know, if you're, if you're coming in from Hamilton or from Fairfield or from Riley or wherever, I hope that you feel similarly about the place that you live. Because as we're going to see today, God places us where we are with great intentionality. There's a reason that you live where you live. And, and so I came here for a reason. And I don't know if you've had a similar experience, but I can say that for the first few years that we were here, I was really excited about this thought that God had me here for a reason. And that thought alone was enough to motivate me and to get me excited about doing ministry in Oxford. And then as time passed, I, I kind of started to wonder, like, well, what is that reason more specifically? And, and I was asking the Lord for that. And I honestly don't know if I had a good answer for that question for a long time. And there are still gaps in my understanding today. And I think that for some of us, that can cause us to become maybe even a little apathetic toward the city, where we maybe say, you know, at one time, I feel like God sent me here for a reason, and I was excited about being here, and I knew why I was here, but then that waned, and now I'm here, and I'm maybe coasting, and I'm trying to be faithful to the things that God's given me, but uh, I don't know exactly what that is in that season. And so if you're, if you're in that place, that's okay. We want to talk about that this morning. You know, we want to be a church that exists 
for the sake of bringing the kingdom of God to Oxford. We want to be a church that exists for the sake of bringing the kingdom of God to Oxford. Some churches exist, um, you know, for the sake of uh, training and equipping, and that's a huge piece of, of who we are as well. Some churches exist for the sake of, you know, being a, a worship powerhouse and writing songs and turning out, you know, new original music, and we want to participate in that too, but at the very center of who we are, we are a church that exists to bring the kingdom of God to Oxford. And so our mission statement, we've been repeating it frequently, and, and I hope that we repeat it often enough that you start to get tired of it because we felt reminded of this in this season that we need to focus on this and, and, and look at it and allow the Lord to speak to us about it. And so it's this, that we're training passionate lovers of Jesus to walk daily in the power, presence, and love of the Holy Spirit. And walking daily in the power, presence, and love of the Holy Spirit requires something of us. It requires that we be good neighbors. And so that's why we're doing this series, The Art of Neighboring, because hopefully this series is going to give us some tools and some ideas and some strategies to love our neighbor as ourselves, as Jesus said in the, in the Great Commandment. And when he said that, I said last week when we introduced this series that if we were going to boil this whole series down into one sentence, it would be that when Jesus said to love our neighbors, he meant to actually love our actual neighbors, the people who live close to us, the people who live on our street, on our block, in our neighborhood. And so we want to be taking the great commandment very literally. And so that was the theme of the talk last week, and we're going to be talking more about that this week, that we're taking the great commandment literally and loving our actual neighbors, the people who live close to us. So Josh talked about our goals during the, uh, during the announcements, and I just want to throw those up on the screen one more time just to have a little refresher. So we are reading The Art of Neighboring, and we're watching some videos, and there's a study guide available to you. Uh, if you haven't gotten your book, like Josh said, there are books out there. We're doing one per family for now, and then next week, you know, if, you, if you'd like to pick up another book, you know, maybe you, you have a big family and so you'd like more than one book because it's kind of hard to share one, uh, feel free to pick up another one next week. So we're reading the book, we're watching some videos and the study guide. Uh, we are pursuing meaningful connection with our eight closest neighbors. Now this morning when you came in the door, there's a handout that you should have received um, and it has nine squares with a little house in the middle. You all have that? If you don't, there should be another one out there for you. But I want you to just turn your attention to that handout for just a second. So the center house on that handout, that represents your house. That's where you live. The eight squares around it represent your eight closest neighbors. Now, I understand if you don't live in town, your neighborhood might not look exactly like that. Okay, that's fine. But consider you know, four houses down the street this way, four houses down the street that way. And there are three letters on each box, A, B, C. So your book talks about this in one of the later chapters, but our goal is to get to know our neighbors better and, and to know them intentionally. And so beside the, the A space, what we want to do is just learn some things about our neighbor that are maybe kind of on the surface, like a hobby of theirs, 
something that they really enjoy, maybe uh, just something, something a little more surface level about them, okay? So something that you wouldn't know by just looking at that, okay? So my neighbor drives a red car. That doesn't count because you didn't have to talk to them to find that out, okay? But there's some examples there at the bottom. My neighbor, you know, likes to play golf, or my neighbor, you know, is a, is a reader, or my neighbor is a teacher at the high school, or, you know, something like that. That would be a surface-level thing that you could learn about your neighbor. So then in the B space, that's something, you know, a little bit deeper, Maybe, uh, maybe a passion of theirs or a dream of theirs or something that they're hoping for, a goal for their family or a career goal or something that you would only know by having several conversations with them and getting to know them on just a slightly deeper level. And then the letter C there, that would be something that's, that's even deeper than that. So that would be like a fear or an insecurity that they have or uh, maybe a, a trauma that they've experienced at some point in their life. And the, the purpose of this exercise is not to fill in the spaces. The purpose of this exercise is to give you a tool and a mode of thinking for engaging with your neighbors. Now, when we talked about this as a staff team about a year ago, this became known as the grid of shame. Okay, because what we found was that when we looked at it, we couldn't really fill any of it out. <laughs> and we were a little bit embarrassed because we were like, whoa, wait a minute, we don't know our neighbors at all. But I would encourage you not to think of it as the grid of shame. I would encourage you to think of it as, as a, a new way of thinking about your relationships with your neighbors. And hopefully, maybe by the end of this series, you might not have the whole thing filled out. You, know, you, might, you might put this on your refrigerator and work on it for the next two years or five years, because this is a long-term investment in the people who live around us. But hopefully, by the end of this series, you've maybe filled in a few new spaces by engaging with your neighbors and getting to know folks a little bit better. So there's that tool that's new for this week. Our third goal is 400 acts of neighboring as a church. So as Josh mentioned, that's our neighboring wall back there. A little half-sheet handout that you got explains that. And then our fourth goal is to host three to five block parties in different neighborhoods around Oxford. So I would just encourage you and your family to pray and consider if that is something that you would like to uh, spearhead in your neighborhood. And we will partner with you to make sure that you have the, the resources and the plans to uh, carry that out. But these are just great opportunities to connect with people, to get to know people in our neighborhoods, to share a meal Alex and I were just talking about the power of sharing a meal and, and, and just to uh, spend time around one another. So those are our goals for the series, and uh, we'll just be slowly chipping away at those as we go. So during the days of the first century church, so we have Jesus he shows up on the scene, he lives his life, he ministers, he is uh, crucified, he, he is raised from the dead, he ascends to the Father, and then what happens is we kick off this project that is known as the church. People identified themselves as followers of the way, is what they would say in that day. And the Apostle Paul 
if you're familiar with the scriptures, the Apostle Paul was probably the most prolific church planter in the early church. So Paul made three missionary journeys. In the first one, he kind of went up the east coast of the Mediterranean and then back to Jerusalem. And then the second and third missionary journeys, Paul traveled almost all the way around the Mediterranean Sea to, to Rome and then sailed back uh, to Jerusalem through the Mediterranean. So these are three extensive journeys on which uh, Paul was planting churches. He was checking in with the church communities that had already been established. He was, uh, he was supporting and teaching leaders who were kind of along those journeys. And so today, we're going to pick up uh, kind of toward the tail end of Paul's second missionary journey around the Mediterranean. So in our key text this morning, we find Paul in Athens. So he's made his way up around the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and he's in Athens, Greece. And a good way to think about Athens is we might think about Athens as sort of the brain of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire, it was large, it was expansive, and Athens was where the thinkers lived. And I think there are some interesting parallels for us today. I'm not going to talk in great detail about this, but, you know, we live in a, in a college town. We live in a town of thinkers, supposedly. And, and we sort of are in a similar situation to the people of Athens. There are ideas being exchanged here. There are people coming from far and wide to learn and to teach. And so Oxford is a hub for, for philosophy and teaching, so to speak, in our, in our modern context. So we can identify with these people of Athens a little bit. So Athens was the leading city of ancient Greece for like a thousand years before this point in time. And then, uh, you know, the, the Greek empire falls, the Romans rise, and this city of Athens kind of rises from the ashes of what was Greece. And when we say that Athens was a hub for teaching and philosophy, Athens was also a spiritual hub because spirituality and education or philosophy had not been separated yet at this point in time. So this is a place where, you know, there are lots of different uh, religions being espoused and practiced in this area. There are lots of Jews. There are lots of pagans. Uh, the, the, the Christians start to get a little bit of a foothold in Athens. And so there's just this super interesting concoction of lots of different religious and philosophical ideas going on in Athens at this point. And the passage that we're going to look at today comes from a place in Scripture where Paul is addressing these philosophers and teachers in Athens. So Paul is a missionary. He's making his way around. He comes to Athens, and he has an audience with the, with the brightest minds of the day, so to speak. And, and they even say to him, they say, you know, we've heard that you've been teaching some, some strange things, some things that we've never heard before, and, and we want to hear more about it. We would love to hear you explain uh, this teaching that you're bringing. And so he teaches at a place called the Areopagus, which is just a funny Greek word for a hill. And it's actually a hill that's dedicated to the, to the god Ares. 
So Aries Opagus means hill, Areopagus, the hill of Aries. Sometimes you'll hear this called Mars Hill because Mars was just another iteration of the same God uh, throughout the course of history, the God of war. So he's on the hill dedicated to Aries, teaching to these philosophers and thinkers. And at this point in the talk, he starts to talk to them about the ignorance of Roman paganism. In other words, the ignorance of this this pagan Roman religion that they're practicing at this point in time. And when I say ignorance, I don't mean thoughtlessness. I don't mean that they were unintelligent. What I mean is unknowingness, that that these people more or less believed that uh, the God that Paul professed, that there was no way to know this God, that uh, he was mysterious, that he was out there, he was potentially a force that was influencing the world, but that he was unknown. And, and in this talk, Paul even acknowledges a monument to an unknown God in Athens. And so it's clear that these folks are spiritual, but they don't know God. And so Paul is talking about, um, he's talking about some of the uh, identity of God and the attributes of God. And he's, he's trying to expose to them who this God is in, in Jesus Christ. This is his mission that he's on. And so he's speaking with these philosophers, and we get to our text for today. Paul says, from one man he made all the nations, this is what Lynn read, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So what's Paul's point here? He's saying to these folks, listen, God is sovereign, meaning God is the ultimate agent in the universe, and he has orchestrated that you would live in this place at this time. He has orchestrated that Athens would be the way that it is, this this home of thought and philosophy and spirituality. God has marked out areas of the earth, and he's marked out appointed times in history that certain people would live in certain places. Can you see where we're going with this? Hopefully, right? God has determined who should be where when. And so when we talk about neighboring, this this has very direct application. If God has determined who should be where, when, that means that you and I and everybody else in this room, if this text is true, God has determined for us that we would be in this place now with great intention. Another translation says it this way. It says, he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So we don't live where we live by accident. We don't live where we live by accident. We're here on purpose. And we don't live where we live because you like the floor plan in your house. And you don't live where you live because you liked the school system. And you don't live where you live because it's all you can afford. We live in this city because God put us here. 
And this is a radically different way of thinking about who we are and why we're here than our intensely individualistic society. Because the thought would be that I am my own independent person and I decide where I live and when I live there and for what reason I live there. But what Paul's saying here is that we're here because God put us here. And if we're here because God put us here, that means that our mission is to be good neighbors. God didn't put us here to be bad neighbors. And God didn't put us here to cut ourselves off from our neighbors. He put us here because he thought it would be good for, for you, Harvey, for you, Pam, for you, Debbie, to live exactly where you live around the people that you are around so that he can show himself through you. So in the reading guide this week, did anybody get a chance to look at that? Just, I'm just curious. It's not a shame thing. I'm just curious who got Okay, so in the reading guide this week, there was one chapter that was out of order. I put it out of order on purpose. I wanted you to read chapters 1 and chapter 7 because um, chapter 7 talks about motive. And, and I think that that's a really important place for us to start. I understand why the authors put it where they did in the book, and, and that's great. Bless them. But I wanted you to read it first because it talks about the difference between having an ultimate motive and having an ulterior motive. Do you, do you remember reading that? And, and so it talks about the difference. Josh and I were having a conversation earlier this week that got me thinking about this. Really what it's talking about, it's talking about the difference between uh, going into sales or going into isolation and being faithful where we're placed. So let me explain that a little bit further if you missed that in the reading or if it's been a while. Um, in chapter 7, the authors quote the book To Transform a City by Eric Swanson and Sam, Sam Williams. I have no idea who they are. But they define these terms this way. They say, ulterior means that something is intentionally kept concealed. An ulterior motive is usually manipulative. It's when we do or say one thing out in the open, but intend or mean another thing in private. Now, when we talk about ulterior motive, that has a really negative connotation. It, it sounds manipulative and it sounds bad, but I think we can have ulterior motives and, and have good intentions, but not understand what it is that we're doing. We can, we can in a sense, we can be manipulative, but not on purpose. Does that make sense? And so then they talk about an ultimate motive. And ultimate means the farthest point of a journey. An ultimate goal is an eventual point or a longed-for destination. Now, when we read what Paul says here, and he says, God did this. He put people where they are when they were there um, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. Does that sound like an ulterior motive or an ultimate motive? An ultimate motive, right? Because what he's saying is that the hope is that you are where you are and, and God wants to reach you. He's reaching out. He's hoping that you will reach out to find him. Not that you'll be coerced, 
Not that you'll be convinced of the gospel, but that you will reach out and find him. And so what I'm trying to say here is that God has placed us where we live with the ultimate motive of revealing him to our neighbors. God has placed us where we live with the ultimate motive of revealing him to our neighbors, not with the ulterior motive of revealing him to our neighbors. And I have to say, um, I have been guilty of carrying the gospel like an ulterior motive. Because I have connected with people before, I've, I've struck up conversations, I've prayed with people in public, all with the ulterior motive of delivering a speech to them at the end, or delivering some something. And I think my motivation for that was good, because I want to reveal Jesus to those people. But my ulterior motive for having a conversation with them was to present the gospel. When in fact, our ultimate motive should be to reveal the character of God. It's a very slight difference, but there's a difference there. And so an ultimate motive, it works differently. An ultimate motive means that we are aware of of who we are and what we're about. And the ultimate motive comes from being united with God in Christ. The ultimate motive is, is... sort of our operating system. It's our way of being. It's, it's about what Jesus has done in our lives to reveal himself so that we might be revealing him to others by that testimony. And so when we're living with our ultimate motive in focus, it ends up looking a lot different from some of the ways uh, that, that maybe we would think about sharing the gospel. You know, in, in the book, Jay gives a really powerful example of having like a salesperson mentality about sharing the gospel with people. You know, people can like smell that. I don't like it. You know, when, I, when I'm going along and I'm just an unsuspecting person and then, you know, whoever it is doesn't know that I'm a pastor and they come up and they try to sell me Jesus. I'm like, nah, I'm okay, thanks. You know, but when we're living life with the ultimate motive of revealing Jesus, what that looks like is befriending folks and holding our story with an open hand and being patient with them. You know, one of the most spectacular things about being a small local church is that we're in it for the long haul with people. How many of you, I'm just curious, and this isn't everybody because some people travel for work or they have different situations, but how many of you have had the same neighbors for five plus years? more than half of the room, right? So tell me this. Jay talks in the, in the book about the, ABC, the ABCs of sales, which is always be closing. Always be closing. If you have five years of prolonged exposure to the same people so that they can see you living your life and they can see how you conduct yourself and you can have many, many meaningful conversations with them, do you need to always be closing? No, you don't need to always be closing. You've got time. Now, I'm not saying, you know, never, never present an opportunity for somebody to come to Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we have to be in the mindset of being in it with people for the long haul. 
actually caring about their lives, actually caring about their kids, actually caring about their career and their home and their, and their family, right? Because that's what's meaningful to people. Not just one conversation that ends with them praying a prayer that may or may not impact the rest of their lives. You know, we said last week, a good neighbor always trumps a good program. And a lot of times, what happens is we get caught up in, in evangelism programs and methods that teach us to always be closing, and we fail to be good neighbors. So our goal is not to convert people, it's to reflect Jesus to them. Because one of those things is actually entirely out of our control. Whether or not somebody becomes a follower of Jesus, you know, we can help facilitate that and we can be a part of that. But ultimately, that's out of our control because that's, that's a decision they make, you know, upon being, being pursued by God and being pursued by the Spirit and, and, and they enter into that. What we can control is being faithful witnesses to what Jesus has done in our lives. And hopefully by being good neighbors and, and holding that with an open hand, people will receive that, that invitation. You know, I love the Trappist monk Thomas Merton said this in his book, New Seeds of Contemplation. I've been reading New Seeds again, and it's one of my favorite books. It's, it's just fed my spirit over and over again. I've tried to read it every year for the last three or four years. And he says this. He says, it was because the saints were absorbed in God that they were truly capable of seeing and appreciating created things. And it was because they loved him alone that they loved everybody. So what Thomas Merton is saying here is that these, these saints that he's referring to, their ability to love people was born out of their relationship with God. It was born out of their communion with God. It was born out of their beholding Jesus, beholding the Lamb, loving Jesus. And that's what enabled them to love people and enabled them to engage with the world in a way that, that didn't pollute their souls but actually allowed them to be a good witness to what God was doing. And so all this begs the question, you know, if this isn't a series about evangelism, then how do we do this? We've got to break out of the always be closing mindset and, and figure out what it looks like to be long-haul neighbors. There were three passages that came to my mind this week as I sort of considered what that looked like. And um, I think these, these three things, you know, these aren't the only three things that can help us, but I think they're three keys that will have us well on our way to living this, this neighboring life. And I want to be clear, you know, one of my seminary professors said, uh, a text without context is pretext for a proof text. If that means anything to you, great. But what I'm saying is, okay, I'm not cherry-picking scriptures to make my point because the context of each of these scriptures, even though they're a little shorter, is about living the way before other people. Okay, so if you read the whole, the whole chapter, if you read the whole, uh, the whole section that these scriptures come from, that's what we're talking about here. Okay, so the first point that I want us to think about when we're engaging with our neighbors is to make peace. To make peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And so we want to be making peace with our neighbors. So Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, 
as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I'm actually going to preach on this verse in the next series, so I don't want to go into too much detail, but I think it's relevant here. This one verse is your hand guide to being a peaceable neighbor and really a powerful person in your neighborhood. So if it's possible, what's Paul saying here? I don't think he's saying sometimes peace isn't possible, so you shouldn't try. I think what he's saying is that if it's possible, meaning we're engaging with our neighbors to make peace between us and them and between them and so on and so forth, and we should be postured toward peace, you know, whether it's possible or not. He says, as far as it depends on you, that means that you are responsible for what you do. You are responsible for your reactions to your neighbors and your thoughts about your neighbors, regardless of what they do. So peacemaking, the Jesus way, can actually be unilateral. It doesn't require both people to come to the table. That's called reconciliation, which is another really good thing that we want to be engaged with. But peacemaking is a decision that you make for yourself about how you're going to interact with your neighbors. And it says, live at peace with everyone. That's pretty straightforward, right? Live at peace with everyone. It's a tall task. The second key to neighboring that that came to my mind was really to care for uh, the widow and the orphan. And so James 1.27, you've heard this, uh, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So if we're going to be good neighbors to our city, to the people in our city, we want to keep this right in front of us. We want to keep this as one of our focuses. Because, you know, you might live in a well-to-do neighborhood. Maybe your eight closest neighbors, they're fine. You know, they, they make enough money, they're pretty stable, they're pretty secure. But the call to a believer, you know, we read the parable of the Good Samaritan last week. The call to a believer is to have in mind the orphans and the widows. Dozens, hundreds of commands in the Hebrew Bible focus on this, caring for the less fortunate, the less able in society. And so we must be doing this as good neighbors. If you're a podcast person, if you like podcasts, Alex and I were talking about podcasts, um, the Vineyard has a podcast. It's a great podcast, Vineyard USA. It's called We Are Vineyard. And our national director, Jay Pathak, does a series of interviews and some talks. A number of weeks back, he did one with a guy named Josh Williams. He's a vineyard pastor on the East Coast. And they do a lot of justice and mercy work in his church. And he had an interesting statement in that podcast that really provoked me to think about what we're doing as a church. He said, if we're minding our father's business, we should ask ourselves how things like our city's homicide count reflect how well we neighbor each other. Now, you can fill in the blank with any other statistic that might be more relevant in Oxford, right? Maybe, maybe it's our, our city's homelessness problem. How well, how, how does that affect, or how, excuse me, how does that reflect how well we're neighboring each other in the community, right? 
There are things like that that we can, and maybe that's uncomfortable. Maybe it's uncomfortable to think of it that way. But I think that God has placed the church in Oxford here for a reason. And I don't think that we need to blame shift and find other people to be responsible for those things. I think that we can, we can think in terms of, you know, how well does this situation in my city reflect how well the church is neighboring? And we can own that. And we can let, you know, we can let ideas and, 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 and ministry ideas and new passions be stirred up in us by the Spirit when we ask ourselves questions like that. So we ask ourselves, uh, do our neighboring efforts extend to folks who make us uncomfortable? Who is it difficult for us to love? You know, we'd, we'd never say it out loud, but maybe there are some people that we would prefer not to be our neighbors. We would prefer not to think of them as neighbors, right? Who, are the, who comes to mind? Let the Spirit work on you in that, in that regard. And then the third point, the third thing that came to my mind was to... Um, it's, it's from 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12. It says to live quietly and win the respect of outsiders. I think that language is really interesting. It says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. I see the church working really hard to assert itself in society, to assert itself in the community. But there is a, uh, there's a principle that the early church kind of adhered to that I think we would do well to revisit. Because, I don't know if you know this, but for the first 300 years of Christianity, the church grew at about a clip of 40% every year. If you average it out, the number of new believers that were coming into the church and the number of new churches that were being planted in, in Africa and in the Middle East and in Europe was growing about 40% year over year until the year uh, 350. Why was that? Why was that happening? What was the cause for this exponential growth? One of the last things that I want to leave you with is about chickens. I was thinking about chickens... Um, yesterday, actually, I was thinking about this message, and I thought, you know, I don't have a good illustration or a good, like, hook for this thing. And the Holy Spirit brought to my mind a lecture that I listened to earlier in the week about chickens. And it was by a professor and scientist. His name is Robert Sapolsky. He teaches at Stanford. And in Sapolsky's talk, he was talking about aggression and competitiveness in hens. And, and more aggressive hens... Listen to this. More aggressive hens um, produce more eggs individually than friendly hens. So it could be said that the aggressive hen is leaving behind more copies of its genes and it's reproducing at a higher rate. You would look at one aggressive chicken and you would say that aggressive chicken is more productive than a friendly chicken. But a group... This is fascinating. A group of friendly hens can outcompete a group of aggressive hens because the violent aggression of the hens destabilizes the group, it kills other hens, it damages eggs, uh, and so forth. And so it decreases the total number of offspring. So 
So friendly hens, a group of friendly hens, is more productive than a group of aggressive hens. Can you see where I'm going with this? So as I was thinking about what I heard about these hens, I started to think about Christians. Because we can be a little bit like chickens. <laughs> chickens are dumb. I don't know if you, you know, but I mean, sometimes we're just like, we don't get it, right? And we're, we're pecking around and we're whatever. We can't figure out what we're supposed to be doing. And, and I was thinking about these hens. I was thinking about us. And what this means for us, I don't know if this is a stretch, okay? This could be a total stretch. If you think this is stupid, you know, throw it out. But this guy is a human behavioral scientist, and there's a reason that he was studying the way that these hens were acting. I think there's a parallel between communities of friendly chickens imprinting more copies of their genes and, and producing more offspring, and, and, and there's a parallel between that and communities of friendly believers who are good neighbors who do 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12. So if an individual believer, you know, maybe they're a really aggressive evangelist, and they always have at least 500 tracks in their car, and they're passing them out to everybody everywhere they go, and they're constantly, you know, bringing word of fire and brimstone and letting people know how horrible and terrible they are, and they're guilting people into becoming converts, that individual Christian might be more productive than one who's friendlier. But Christianity was not popular in the beginning. And so those folks had to figure out how to live peaceably in a society that was not friendly to them. And so what happens is they take this word to heart from 1 Thessalonians 4. They live quietly so that their daily lives win the respect of outsiders. One of the things that they did was that they performed dramatic acts of self-sacrificial love on a day-to-day -day basis. People saw this community acting that way, and they decided they wanted to join up. So take that or leave it, but I want to close with this. When we try to love everyone, we often end up loving no one because we get so obsessed with how we can personally be productive for the kingdom. But if we're not intentional about engaging with people, about building relationships with people and loving people, we end up having metaphorical love for our metaphorical neighbors. And that's kind of where we started last week. And so radical acts of self-sacrificial love is the Jesus way of neighboring. And when we can carry ourselves just honestly and openly before the people around us, when we can share what it is that Jesus has done in our lives, hopefully in an invitational way that will make them curious about what it is that God has done for us, we will welcome more of our neighbors into the kingdom. So I want to close. We're, Josh is going to come up, and we're just going to share a few prayer points. And we're going to do ministry time a little bit differently today. So it's just going to be interwoven into the, into the worship. So worship team, you can come up. And uh, we're going to have a prayer team available in the back. Josh, you come on up. And we're just going to share a few um, prayer points for ministry. Yeah, I'll do that at the end.